And so this is a special time for us in the life of the church. Godly leadership is one of God's grace gifts to his church. And God has blessed this church with godly men who lead and who serve. Do you know there's two offices in the life of the church? The office of deacon and the office of elder, which sometimes is called pastor, bishop, overseer. There's different terms for that. But today we come to recognizing the role of the deacon in the life of the church here. The deacons have many roles, but their primary calling is to serve the body of Christ here. They do so through prayer. They do so through meeting the needs of believers in the body. They do so by taking care of the needs of the church as the church gathers together. And here the deacons do all of those things and more. And there's so much that we take for granted that the deacons do. The fact that we show up in the mornings and the buildings are unlocked and that there's security and that there's, they're watching out to make sure what happens on campus is safe. The deacons are involved in all of that. The deacons are involved in so many things that happen here that go on behind the scenes, from maintenance of the facilities, just taking care of the church campus, visiting those who are in need, taking care of benevolence issues, visiting those in the hospital. The deacons do a lot to serve in a lot of ways that perhaps we don't even see on a daily basis. As we come to deacon ordination, I just want to read to you what the Scripture says about the qualifications for deacons, this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the scripture says, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Managing their children and their own households well. But those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so, Gateway family, you have selected five new deacons to be part of the deacon fellowship here in this church. There are men who have met these qualifications and men who you have selected and voted in. And so we want to have a time to recognize them this morning, introduce them to you, and pray over them as we ordain them and commission them to the task. And so the new deacons that you've selected are Alex Hood. Don Hatcher, Greg Locklear, who is unfortunately homesick and not able to be with us this morning, Johnny Chappelle, and Tom Habercorn. So if you guys would come forward with your wives and just line across the front. So you, you five or four guys, since one's not here, you guys come forward, your wives come on up with you. I want to make sure the congregation sees you all and knows who you all are. We are thankful for you, brothers. We're thankful for the way you're going to join the existing deacons in your service to the church. And so what we want to do right now is to have a chance to pray over these men because of the work that the Lord has set them apart for. And so we'd like to ask our current elders and our current deacons, if you come up here and gather around these brothers and their wives, lay hands on them. I'm going to lead us in a prayer time, and we'd like all of you to, to join in agreeing on that. We want to set them apart and commission them for the work to which they have been called. So give you all just a minute to come forward and lay hands on these brothers. And friends, what, what a grace gift of the Lord to this church. If you look up and see these men right here, these elders and deacons, what a grace gift this is to this body of believers. Would you join me in agreeing in prayer as we, we set apart the, these, these five men to be deacons? Father, we are thankful, God, for your love for the church. God, that you have set the pattern for how the church is to be run and structured and governed. And Lord, we are thankful that you've given to this church godly elders and godly deacons. These men who love you, God, who love their families, who love this church, this body of believers. And we ask your blessings over these new deacons. Father, we're thankful for Alex and for Don and for Greg and for Johnny and for Tom. And for their willingness to step up and to serve in this way. Thank you for their, their heart to serve you, their heart to be available to meet the needs of this congregation. 
Lord, we ask blessings over these five brothers in this new role to which you've called them. Father, I ask first and foremost that you would continue to let them be men who love you well. God, these would be men who would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, would you give these brothers grace to set their eyes on Christ and Christ alone and run the race that you've set before them? Would you give them grace to not be distracted from doing that which you've called them to do? And that is to seek hard after you, O Lord. But Lord, I pray as well that you would give these brothers grace to love their wives well. But we know that the enemy would love nothing more to destroy the church, and often he does that by destroying marriages. And so, God, I pray you would just put a protection around these brothers and their wives and their families, that, Lord, they would be godly men who shepherd their families well. And, Lord, we pray that together with them and their wives might look to you and, Lord, be able to do this calling that you've placed upon these brothers. So, Lord, even as we pray for these brothers, we pray as well for Patsy and Jan and for Angela and Marilyn and Jennifer, Lord, that you would just give them grace as they encourage their husbands, as they come alongside their husbands in the work to which you've called them. Lord, we pray as well you give to these brothers great wisdom. Lord, wisdom as they make decisions about things like security around here, things we take for granted. They make decisions about how to care for those in need in the community. They make decisions about the future of this campus. Lord, as they wrestle with these things, Lord, I pray you would grant to them the wisdom that they need. Father, that they might be wise in all they do as they serve the body here. Lord, we pray that through their service, God, you would receive great glory. God, that your kingdom would advance and this church might be built up and that these brothers would have great joy in the process. And so we just commission them now, Lord, thanking you that, Lord, we're just acknowledging that we've not set them apart, but God, you've set them apart. God, you're the one who've called them to this and you're the one who has blessed them and anointed them and will guide them in all they do. And we look forward to seeing how you're going to provide. And so we just... Give them back to you, Lord, thanking you for them and looking forward to what you'll do in our midst through them. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, brothers. We love you all and we're thankful for you all. And and friends, I do not say it lightly when I say this is a grace gift to this church. Godly leadership is a grace gift of the Lord's kindness to us. And we are incredibly thankful for these brothers. Well... Advent is still going on, obviously. You see it in the candles, you see it in the banners, you hear it in the songs that we sing. And today we are on the third theme of Advent, the theme of joy. We've already seen hope. If you see the banners, we've seen peace. And today we are to the theme of joy. You've already heard the great word from Bruno and his family to remind us about joy and what a precious thing that is to be reminded of the joy that we have in Christ and what God has done for us. We've seen it in the songs that we've sung already. And just to remind you what Advent is, because not all of us come from traditions that have celebrated Advent. Advent, literally the word means coming. It's a time that we think about the coming of Christ. And as we celebrate Advent, there's really kind of a threefold aspect to the celebration. And you heard me allude to this two weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating. In Advent, we're remembering the longings of the Jewish people for the Messiah to come. In this season of Advent, we reflect back on the Old Testament times and the longings for the thousands of years when the people were waiting for the Messiah to come. And we remember and reflect on that longing when they did not yet know what the Lord was going to do. We're thankful as well, secondly, in Advent, for the Messiah having come. Friends, we are on this side of history. We get the joy of seeing how the story unfolded. We get to look back now and see the promises of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. And we get to look back and see that how the Messiah came and see how it's Christ. And we get the joy of all that. And so at Christmas, we reflect on those longings. And we reflect as well on how they're fulfilled in Christ, how we have hope, peace, joy, and love because of Christ and his coming. But then the third thing I mentioned that in Advent we think about is our own longings 
for Christ's return. Because like I mentioned two weeks ago, that when we have hope, we have peace, we have joy. But friends, we only have it in part. We don't yet have it in full. There's a day coming when Christ comes back. And we have the second coming of Christ. And we have these in full as we see him face to face. So even as we remember the longings of the Jewish people for the Messiah, we have our own longings at Advent for Christ's second coming. And so with that in mind of what Advent's about, we come to the third theme of Advent today, the theme of joy. And so I want to ask the question as we begin, why do we rejoice so much at the birth of Christ at Christmas? How does the story of a baby in a manger and shepherds and wise men and angels in the sky, why does that bring such joy to our hearts? It brought joy when it happened. You think about Mary. She rejoiced when she had the news. Think about the shepherds as they saw the angels. The angels were rejoicing, so the shepherds went and saw themselves. And we see through their actions, their joy. The wise men rejoiced when they found the Christ child. So people rejoiced when it happened, the first Christmas, and yet here we are 2,000 years later, and people still rejoice. That feeling you get when you sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. The feeling you get when you reflect on the Christmas story and the Christ child in the manger, why does it bring such joy for us? I think one big picture reason why it brings such joy for us is because Christmas reminds us of something a lot bigger than us. The Christmas story is not about us. It's a story, actually, that reminds us that we're so helpless that God had to come to us when we could not get to him. It's a story of something much bigger than us, the message of God reconciling the world to himself. But I want to take a step further back today, and I want to see one main idea related to joy and the Advent theme of joy today, of why do we rejoice so much at Christmas? And I want to make the case say that we rejoice at Christmas because God rejoices. It's simply this. We rejoice because God rejoices. And I want us to kind of think through that from the Scriptures this morning. Yes, we can rejoice in what God has done, but we rejoice in what God has done because God rejoices in what God has done. We can rejoice in who God is because, well, God rejoices in himself. He rejoices in who he is. And so ultimately, simply, we simply rejoice because God Rejoices, And I want us to see that from the scriptures this morning. Now, this is going to be a little preview of what's to come this spring. As I've told you before, on Wednesday nights, getting into the spring, we're going to start looking at the attributes, the characteristics of God. And when you look at the characteristics of God, we kind of, there's so many, we divide them into two groups. We look at the characteristics of God that are unique to him, that he in no way shares with his creation. We the big fancy term, we call that the incommunicable attributes of God. But then we're going to break that down into a group of God's characteristics that we call the communicable, the parts of God's character that he shares in part with his creation. What I'm mentioning here would fall under that description. We as people are made in the image of God. We can rejoice because our creator rejoices. We can, in a sense, share in a small part what God experiences in his rejoicing himself. And so I realize we're going to get into a lot more of that this spring on Wednesday nights. But I want us to see today in this foretaste that we rejoice fundamentally, primarily because God himself rejoices. We're going to go to the Old Testament today. We're going to have another Old Testament text this Advent season. And we're looking at a text that's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Because the text is so full of God's love. And I pray as we look at it, you will sense God's joy, not only in what he did at Christmas, not only in what God's doing in the world, but God's joy in you, follower of Christ. And so if you'll find in your copy of God's Word on your Bible, the book of Zephaniah, it may take us a minute to get there, but Zephaniah, the go-to text for Christmas, right? 
Zephaniah chapter 3. So if you want to find near the end of the Old Testament, so find the Gospels. You can easily find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Find those and now start going backwards. Go back through Malachi, go back through Zechariah, go back through Haggai, and boom, you should hit Zephaniah. If you're going backwards from the Gospels and you hit Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, you've gone too far, okay? So find Zephaniah chapter 3. If you're having trouble finding it, we'll have the words on the screen as well. While you're trying to find Zephaniah, some background. Zephaniah was a minor prophet. That does not mean he was young. That does not mean he was unimportant. He was a minor prophet because what, he, what is recorded for us in his writings is short. When the canon of Scripture came together, all the short writings of the prophets got put together at the end of the Old Testament. And that's why it's placed right here. Just to remind you, when you look at the prophets, you're ultimately seeing God's word. Because God spoke through the prophets. So what we're reading today is not Zephaniah's ideas for us. These are the very words of our Creator spoken to the Israelites and spoken to us through the mouth of Zephaniah. Unfortunately, we know very little about Zephaniah. All we simply know about him is basically that his name means Yahweh has protected. So all we can conclude from that is Zephaniah probably had believing parents. And that's about all I can tell you about Zephaniah. (laughs) Zephaniah, though, was written around 625 B.C., so we're going back over 600 years before the time of Christ. And just to remind you, Israel was divided. The northern kingdom and southern kingdom was split. The northern kingdom has been exiled. It's not exactly a great time in history here. But the southern kingdom had a good king at this time. His name was Josiah. He was a good king who brought reform. And Zephaniah is bringing this prophecy in that time with a divided kingdom. He's speaking here to, the, to Judah, to the southern kingdom, during the reign of Josiah. And the theme of Zephaniah is the coming day of the Lord. So it's a very futuristic-focused book here because it's talking about the future judgment on the entire world. And so the beginning of Zephaniah, which we're not going to be in today, though, is a really harsh tone because it's warnings of judgment. And friends, chapter 1 is one of the most terrifying chapters in the Bible on describing God's coming judgment. And so you have that laid out in chapters 1 and chapter 2. But today we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 3 because the whole tone shifts at this point. Because Zephaniah, God is speaking through Zephaniah and reminds people that they will return to the Lord. God will bless them. And so Zephaniah 3 is now a chapter of hope, a chapter of peace, a chapter of joy, a chapter of these themes that we think about at Advent so much. And so as we're reading in Zephaniah chapter 3, I want you to be listening for, first of all, what are the commands to God's people to rejoice? So as we're reading, I want you to be listening for that. What are we commanded to do? Like rejoicing is not just an option. Joy is not an option for us. What are we commanded to do in terms of joy and rejoicing in that? But then I also want you to listen for in Zephaniah 3, is joy something we can muster up, so to speak? Can I just somehow just think enough positive thoughts to feel joy today? Or is joy something that I experience because of what God has done for me? And can I rejoice fundamentally, not because of my circumstances, but can I rejoice because God himself rejoices? So we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. Can I ask you to stand, please, and honor the reading of God's word? What a blessing we have to have the words of God and his plans for us. Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going to read just about four verses today, just verses 14 through 17. So Zephaniah chapter 3, starting at verse 14, I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, 
Let not your hands grow weak. Listen to verse 17 here. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are thankful that you've given us your words of life. And Lord, I pray today as we look at these words that you gave through Zephaniah, that God, you might open our eyes afresh to what you want us to know. God, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand more of what it means to rejoice because you rejoice. And now, God, I pray we would all leave here in awe and wonder the fact that you, the creator, rejoice over us, your people. And may that truth change us this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So Zephaniah chapter 3, I want us to see simply that idea that we rejoice because God rejoices. So look back at verse 14 as we begin. And let's look at the command, first of all, for us to rejoice. And so if you look at verse 14 again, there's four commands. There's four imperatives here for us. And look at those. They're first of all, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice. And exult with all your heart. So you see these commands. These are again, these are commands. Sing, shout, rejoice, and exult. You know, all these really are conveying the same idea. They're all just kind of nuanced different ways, but it's the same key idea. Sing aloud literally means to shout for praise. We're shouting praise to God for his acts of salvation. The word that's translated here, shout, means to shout in triumph, to shout in acclamation. The one that's fascinating to me is the word that's, re- that's translated rejoice here. Because it's the same word that was used in olden days. You know, back before the days you had your phones and you had real-time updates of what's going on in the world and all the news sources, the way news got to your town was people would ride in on horseback. Heralds would come in and bring pronouncements to the city. And so if you were in a time of war, you know what was happening on the battlefield. You know what was happening far away. And so heralds would come riding into your town, and they would announce, they would proclaim what was happening. And so if you can imagine the people, you're in a wartime, you don't know if your city's going to survive or not, and you hear the footsteps of the horses coming into the town, and you wonder what's going to happen. And as the, the heralds get close, they begin to start shouting, Rejoice! 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 It was the same word that was used then to announce there's good news coming. And the people's hearts would be put at ease. If you were to go in, they'd come gather in the town square to hear what was happening. It's that idea of rejoicing that's here, and exulting as well is the same idea. It's just to be jubilant is to rejoice. And so, friends, this is not a quiet thankfulness. These are commands that we are to out loud, expressively praise, rejoice in our Creator. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When you have a really deep joy, it has to be expressed. Now, I know in a room like this, you pull for different sports teams. I saw a little interchange going on this morning between two of you about different sports teams and who y'all are pulling for. And so different people have different sports teams. But if you're in the stadium and your team has a massive victory over the other team in a way that was unexpected, when your team gets done and all of a sudden you get that touchdown at the last second or the field goal at the last second and you win, not thinking you would, does everyone just kind of give a little golf clap? And they say, okay, that was a nice game. I'm going to go home. No, what happens? You start hugging people you don't know. And people start jumping up and down screaming. You're hugging strangers. I mean, we start acting in ways that are not normal. I mean, that'd be really, I mean, can you imagine coming to church morning, hey, I don't know you, and everyone starts running around hugging. That's kind of what happens in the state, at least from my experience, I've seen that in Jordan here. And so people do that. Why? Because when there's a deep joy, it somehow needs to be expressed. Same thing on a wedding day, right? I love officiating weddings. I get to go to Huntsville this week and officiate a wedding later this week up in Huntsville, and I love doing weddings. I love watching the faces of the bride and the groom. I also love watching the faces of the people in the congregation, and so when I get to pronounce, this couple is now husband and wife, you don't ever see them being like, oh, 
okay, I guess it's time. And let me check Facebook as I walk down the aisle. I mean, no, they're like beaming. They're, they're, they're smiling from ear to ear because there's such joy that has to be expressed. But not just them, the congregation. When I watch couples go down the aisle, even, even guys who kind of check out at weddings, I watch their faces and they're smiling. There's an excitement. There's a joy that has to be expressed because there's such joy in that. And friends, God calls us as his children to express that type of outward joy in who he is. And friends, it's not an option. It's a command. But it's not a command to put on a show or a front. You can notice in verse 14 how it describes us. It says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult. How? With what? With all your heart. This is not a command to put on a good face and act like we're, we're praising God. This is a heart attitude. And in the Hebrew, the word heart can be used in different ways. Here it means emotions. That from the depths of our emotions, we are called to outwardly praise God. With authenticity and sincerity from deep down inside us, we are called as his children to praise God. But a quick disclaimer here. This is not a command for all people. This is a command for believers and believers only. We're not telling non-believers to smile, be nice, rejoice, and put on a, a good front. This is not a self-help of think positive thoughts and smile for today. This is a command written to believers only because only believers have the source of joy that we're going to see in this text for why we are to rejoice in the first place. Again, notice who it's written to. These commands to sing aloud, to rejoice, to exult. It's written to, O daughter of Zion, O Israel, O daughter of Jerusalem. Friends, these are just poetic terms that simply mean God's chosen people. At the time, this obviously was applying to Judah, the remnant of God's people in the southern kingdom. But it applies to us as the church today. And God's kindness to us, we have been grafted in. We are God's chosen people. And so this is addressed to us as a command. Which raises, again, the fundamental question, why do God's people need to be reminded to rejoice? If you were here Wednesday night, we started a series on the carols of Christmas. And we went back to the oldest Christmas carol that's still sung today, and that's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you remember in that carol, we sing over and over in that carol, rejoice, rejoice. It's a reminder to God's people to rejoice. Why do God's people need to be reminded to rejoice? And I love kind of walking around a little bit Wednesday night and listening to some of you guys talk about it during our discussion time. Specifically, why do they need a reminder? The kingdom's divided. It's not exactly a happy time in their history. The northern kingdom is exiled. The southern kingdom, the remnant, has people surrounding them who hate them. Just in the book of Zephaniah alone, listen to the enemies who are mentioned of Israel. The Philistines are coming against them. Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Assyria. They have more than five of these outside armies that are waiting to destroy them. That's not exactly a situation where in human strength we're going to naturally turn and rejoice. Well, what about you? Are you in a season right now where it's easy to rejoice? And if so, I pray what we're about to see in Zephaniah is going to help you rejoice even more, not just in your circumstance, but rejoice in what God has done and what God feels about you. But perhaps you're in a season right now where it's hard to rejoice. This is the season that Zephaniah is speaking to. It's not a time that's going to be an easy time to rejoice in human strength. And yet these commands to God's people from the depth of your emotions, rejoice, shout, Exalt, be glad that command still carries even if we're in a tough place. Why? Because of God's promises. God's promises enable us to rejoice wherever we are. And so as we look through, realize verses 14 through 17 really are one unit in the Hebrew. They really all go together. And so verse 14 tells us, God's people, you're to rejoice. Now verses 15, 16, and 17 are going to build that idea and show us exactly why we can rejoice even if you're having an awful week. 
why you can rejoice even if life is not working the way you want it to work. And so as we look at verse 15, look for the promises that can enable you, like the people of Israel, to rejoice. So look at verse 15 here. We're commanded to rejoice, to shout out loud, and here's why. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He shall never again fear evil. Friends, regardless of your circumstances, there's some cool promises you can claim right here to help you rejoice this Christmas season because God rejoices. First of all, notice it says that, that God, the Lord, has taken away the judgments against you. Perhaps your translation says the punishments. Literally, the, the Hebrew word here means judgments. This is the Lord's sentence of condemnation for sin. God is saying your condemnation is removed. I have forgiven you. Fundamentally, friends, we can rejoice because God in his kindness to us has removed the punishment of our sin. That we can rejoice because in Christ we are forgiven. But he doesn't stop there in verse 15. The next phrase says, he has cleared away your enemies. The imagery here is the idea of casting out, of sweeping out. I don't know if your house is like our house, but our kids love to run in and out from the back door. And all the grass clippings come in with them. And the back door of our house looks like our yard sometimes and around our dinner. Because there's grass clippings everywhere. It's not like I have to go get a backhoe and all the strength to be able to get rid of the grass clippings. I just need a little broom to sweep them out. The imagery here is that God is so strong, he just sweep out their enemies. He just push aside their enemies. That God, the mighty warrior, which we'll see in a minute, is able to act on their behalf. He is almighty. And friends, they can rejoice because God is the one who can just sweep out, clear away easily whatever afflicts them as he chooses to do so. But perhaps most significant in all this is this third phrase of verse 15 that enables them to rejoice. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Friends, because they are forgiven, because the penalty of sin has been dealt with, there is nothing now to alienate them from God. God can be present with his people who stand forgiven here. That the creator, the great I am, the infinite God can be right there as the king with his people. And what does that mean that he's there in their midst? It means he's there to preside over their affairs. It means that he's there to take care of their needs. It means that he's present to bless them. And here the great I am promises to be with his people. But friends, these aren't just maybes. Like, well, God's not saying, I'll try to come to you. These are promises. God with certainty is saying, I have forgiven you. God with certainty is saying, whenever I choose, I can just wipe out your enemies. God is saying that I am here with you now. I promise that. But like I mentioned earlier, there's this kind of not, already not yet tension here. We have this in part, but not in full. When does this fully happen? Look at the beginning of verse 16. On that day. Well, this is a theme throughout the whole book of Zephaniah. On that day is referring to a future day of the Lord where judgment comes on the whole earth, but yet a day that gives hope. For God's people. And though we don't have time this morning to go through it, if you read the context, it's clear that this is a future day in view. If you go to the previous verses, verses 9 through 13, it shows the turning of the nations to Christ. Obviously, you look at world news right now, the nations are not all turned to Christ. You look at also what it says in these verses preceding what we read this morning, it's the turning of Israel to Christ. We watch the news, that obviously hasn't happened yet 
either. Verses 18 through 20 that follows what we're looking at today is about Israel being fully restored. And obviously that has not yet fully happened yet. So this whole thing is taking place in this, this context of in that future day. So yes, we experience this in part, but the day is coming that we have this in full. And so friends, we can rejoice because God has forgiven us. We can rejoice because God will remove our oppressors as he sees fit. We can rejoice because God is present. But friends, we rejoice and long for the day that we have this in full. Like I mentioned before, where we're not just freed from the power of sin, but we're freed from the presence of sin. And that day's coming. The day's coming not just where we know that God's with us in the trials, but the day is coming where there are no more trials. And the day is coming not only that we have God in our midst, but we see God face to face with an unveiled face. So, friends, we rejoice at what we have, and we long for and rejoice at the promise of what is still yet to come. And, friends, such joy, such promises give us joy not fear. Look at how Zephaniah describes it at the end of verse 15. He says, you shall never again fear evil. How cool is that going to be the day when there is no more fear of anything ever again? Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Or in some older translation it says, let not your hands grow limp. What in the world does that mean? Your hands do not grow weak. For the Israelites, the hand was your symbol of strength. And power, and a weak hand, a limp hand, was a sign that you were fearful, that you were lost power. And so in this, God is saying your hands never have to grow weak again. Because of my promises, because of my joy and your joy, you never again have to fear. Your hands never have to go weak again. Friends, that in and of itself is enough to rejoice. But all this is building to the climax of verse 17, which is a verse that's been called the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. Because verse 17 is stunning. Verse 17 is a verse that should leave us absolutely speechless. Now, pray as we think about verse 17, it will do that for us. So look back at verse 17 again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, when God chooses to act, when God chooses to forgive us of our sin, when God chooses to be with us in the trial or to sweep out our oppressors, whatever he sees fit in this time, when God is in our midst now, and in the future when God delivers us in full and we see him face to face, we no longer have the presence of sin, when he does away with all trials and we no longer have struggles in life anymore, and the day when we see him with unveiled faces, God does not do that begrudgingly. God does not do that with a shrug of his shoulders, an oh well, a sigh, or with any hesitation. Don't miss this. What God is doing here for his people, he does so joyfully. He does so with rejoicing. He does it exuberantly. He does it with passion because he rejoices in his people. Do you get that? God feels joy in his people. That is absolutely mind-boggling. And stunning. And I want to see it again. So it's up on the screen. Let's read it out loud together what's up on the screen, okay? Read this with me. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, this is joyful, divine celebration. The creator who spoke the world into being the great I am, Jehovah God, Yahweh God, the Alpha and the Omega rejoices over you. The God who spoke the world into being sings over you, child of God. 
Let that truth sink deep into your heart. But better yet, he doesn't just rejoice over you from a distance. Where is he in verse 17? The Lord your God is where? He's in your midst. There it is again, that the God who's rejoicing over you, singing over you, is not doing so remotely, far away. In your midst, God is singing over you. Even the name of God here, this translated the Lord is Yahweh, it's this divine, it's this personal name, it's a reminder that he is noble and he is present and he's there with us. Now, friends, it gets even better because the one who is with us, who is singing over us, is not just one who can sing over us and encourage us but can't help. He's one who can help because he's one who can sweep out all the enemies. He's not just the encourager who's going to pat you on the shoulder and be like, it's okay, I wish I could do something. If I can do something, let me know. He's the guy who's there in your midst, who can do whatever he desires to do, and nothing can stop him in that. You know, I got the imagery as I was thinking through this. You know, my boys know I'm not a big fan of heights. So when, so when we're, like, seeing an airplane, they're like, Daddy, do you want to put on a parachute and jump out of that airplane? I'm like, mm-mm, no. Or they'll see a big cell phone tower, a big, like, radio tower on top of a mountain. They're like, Daddy, do you want to climb up and fix that light bulb? I'm like, no way. And it's so sweet that they're like, Daddy... Would you, you know, I tell you what, if you'll jump out of the airplane, I'll hold you while you jump out. Wouldn't that make you feel better? Or, Daddy, you climb that tower, I'll climb behind you while you go change that bulb on top of the tower. Well, it's so sweet. Like, I feel so loved when they tell me that. But, friends, my six-year-old and four-year-old are not going to help me feel a lot better when I jump out of an airplane. If I'm on top of a tower a thousand feet off the ground, having a four-year-old and six-year-old behind me is not going to give me as much hope. Though it's going to bless me because they love me, it's not going to be able to secure me if I fall. That's not the imagery here of God in their midst as the warrior. This is the presence of God who says, don't fear, I'm here. And if I speak, I can obliterate your enemies. If I speak, your trials away. If I speak, I, anything I want to do, I can do, and I am here with you. That he is the mighty one. And in fact, his name in verse 17 conveys that. Look back at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is who? A mighty one. He's the mighty one. This, this word is often translated hero. Warrior, the distinguished one who does heroic deeds. He's the divine warrior, the sovereign king, the ruler. And whatever the ruler delights to do will certainly happen. And nothing, nothing can stop him. If every army of the world and every strongest king and president ruler got together, if the divine warrior says it's going to happen, every army on this earth can't combine together and stop it. This divine warrior is so powerful that even if Satan and every demon in hell comes together, he cannot be stopped. That is the one who is now right now with you, singing over you, saying, I rejoice in you. I am the divine warrior who will certainly do what I want to do, and I am here singing over you in your midst. And look at how he sings over us back in verse 17. He will rejoice over you with what? With gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with what? Is there any sense of a begrudging God here who's kind of like tolerating us and putting up with us? I think sometimes we get the, the impression that he's kind of having first like getting impatient with us. And, you know, I guess often because we do that with our own kids too often. But he's the, he's the loving father, the divine warrior who's saying, I am singing over you. I am here with you. I'm going to have my way with you. And friends, there are no words to adequately express the wonder of that. That's why when we see in Ephesians 3.19, it talks about a love that surpasses all understanding. Zephaniah 3.17, it's a love that surpasses all understanding. And friends, though we cannot fully explain how the infinite God, the creator, the one who has no beginning and no end, can rejoice in his people, 
that we cannot fully explain that. We can believe it because the Word of God says it. But even more than that, we can experience it. And we can rejoice because He rejoices over us. And so as we come towards the close this morning, I want us to have some time to reflect. So I'm going to ask the praise team if they'll come on forward here and start playing. And I want to give us a chance to reflect on this truth for a few minutes. In the busyness of the Christmas season, often we can miss rejoicing. But I fear in the business of the Christmas season, often we can miss the fact that we rejoice because God rejoices. This is not just a call for us to rejoice and sing a little bit louder or something. That's not what this is about. This is about recognizing the fact that God himself, our creator, rejoices over us. And so, first of all, to believers, to brothers and sisters in Christ, are you rejoicing in God today? Can you say from the depth of your heart you are finding joy in him and you're rejoicing in him because he rejoices in you? If not, what's holding you back? Take a few minutes this morning and dwell on the promises that he has forgiven you, that he is in your midst. Dwell on the promises of that future day coming when you will never see the temptation from sin again, when you will never have trials or oppressions again, when you will see him with an unveiled face. Dwell on those things this day. And I pray that you, brother or sister in Christ, can leave today rejoicing in him. But if you come in today rejoicing already in Christ, can you today strengthen that even more? Knowing that even as you're rejoicing in him, he is rejoicing over you. And friends, his voice is a lot louder than yours. And can you today take comfort in knowing that your creator, who formed you and made you for his glory, who has a purpose for your life and plans for your life, is today not just begrudgingly looking on you. No matter what happened last week, if you are in Christ, when he's looking at you today, he's seeing the righteousness of Christ. And he is singing over you, O one clothed in the righteousness of of Christ. And I pray that truth will let you rejoice in deeper and deeper ways. But I do need to give a word of warning here. Like I mentioned, this is only for believers that this is written to. This type of rejoicing is only possible if we are in Christ. And as the new guy here at Gateway, I'm just now beginning to hear some of your stories of how God has worked in your life. But I don't know all of you. Perhaps in a room this size, there's someone here. You've gone through the motions of going to church in Advent season. You've gone through the motions of doing church stuff, but never deep down have you ever experienced transformation that comes with knowing that your judgments against your sin have been taken away by your Creator and that He now sees you as Christ, as He sees Christ, and He is rejoicing over you. And so today for you, can you say with certainty that God has removed His judgments for your sin and that you stand forgiven before Him? Have you experienced that? Are you experiencing freedom from sin today? And if not, friend, what better day than an Advent day? to experience perhaps the joy of God for the first time, and for the first time today, have your Creator singing over you. So as we close today out, before we stand and sing, I want us to take a few minutes where we're seated, just to be still before the Lord. We're not going to sing at first. We're just going to look the instrumentals. We're just going to play for just a moment here. But I think you take a few minutes and just pray. Perhaps you need to pray and just ask God to give you fresh joy in Him. Perhaps you need to thank God for those things, those promises of what He's already done for you. Or perhaps... You need to just sit still and marvel at the fact that right now in Christ, God is singing over you. So whether it's you need to talk to God or you just need to be still before the Lord, would you just take a moment and in the stillness of his presence, realize that the Lord is in your midst, the mighty one who will save, that he will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, that he will exult over you with loud singing.
Father God, would you flood our hearts with hope, with love, with joy and peace today in this Advent season? Lord, I pray that we would truly stand in awe of you, Lord, and that we would stand in awe of the fact that you rejoice over us. And Lord, I pray that all of our feeble attempts at rejoicing this Christmas season would come out of the fact that we can rejoice because you rejoice, that we are made in your image. And God, I pray every time we sing, whether it's joy to the world or we see the manger scene or we think about the Christmas story or we hear of an answered prayer in the life of a brother or sister in this fellowship, or in our hearts are begin to fill with joy, would you remind us of the joy you find in us, not because of who we are, but because of what you have done for us, because you have called us, because you have drawn us, because you have made us new in Christ, and because of your work you rejoice. So, Lord, would you fill our hearts with joy today, perhaps a joy we've not felt in a long time. Or for those who are discouraged this day, I know people in this room have lost loved ones recently. They carry burdens of job losses and sicknesses and trials and difficulties and these things that come from being in a cursed and fallen world. This day, God, would you give them grace to look beyond the circumstances and to look to you, their creator, to find hope, to find comfort, to find joy, knowing that you rejoice and you sing over them. And Lord, for those who come in already with hearts full of joy, Lord, I pray that would grow in ways that they didn't even think it could grow. They would flow to even overflowing in new ways. And yet, Lord, and there's someone here who's never trusted you. I pray today you might arrest their attention, their need for you. Perhaps they see the lack of joy that there is. God, might that be your grace gift to them to realize their need of you, that this Christmas season might be the Christmas season they walk with you for the first time. So Lord, we're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful that you rejoice over us. Lord, we are thankful that we can now return to you in praise or just a, a glimpse of what you're, you're worthy of in you. So, Lord, we just pray it all today in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?